So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Ahlo sahla, and welcome back to Unlimited. This week, we are continuing our Meet the Board series, and we are interviewing Rudaina Abdo. She's a special advisor to the board and used to be our director of scholarships. She is the founder of Veki, and you'll hear a lot more in the rest of the episode, so stay tuned. MIT alum, class of 1990, architect, urban planner, Arab, Palestinian refugee, mother, nonprofit founder. Just a few words that describe our guest today, Rudaina Abdo. Hello, Rudena. Thanks for joining. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me here. It's really great to uh, be able to meet both our current board members and our ex-officio uh, advisors. So, Rudena, you've been involved with the MIT Arab Alumni Board for quite some time. So uh, it's great for us to finally get to hear your story and basically what brought you to MIT. Okay, you're going to take me many years back now. <laughs> um, this was, I was living in Greece. So I grew up between Lebanon and Greece, and I finished high school in Greece. And back then in the 80s, MIT was a very far, very far away. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was, I had no idea what, I had no idea where I would get in. So I, through a lot of applications and I reached far mostly I started with the UK actually but then I ended up focusing on um, on the US and I, th- I also considered Italy at one point I had an application for architecture for Italy at one point but I didn't proceed with that um, but lots of my my brother was in this in, in um, Vermont I had relatives in Boston so it was mostly east coast based mostly and I just went for it. I just applied for a whole bunch and I shot high and um, no idea, <laughs> having absolutely no idea what would come out on the other end. Uh, so, yeah, thankfully, I uh, had a few options and um, MIT was definitely one of the top contenders. And my cousin, actually, Hany Asfur, was studying there at the time and he was a big influence oh, on wow. me. Yeah, he was a big influence on me also taking the architecture path and he was studying architecture there. So initially I was going to go to RISD for architecture. Then um, I decided to go for MIT and yeah, (laughs) that's how the decision came together. I didn't know you were related. That's uh, great to know. (laughs) Yeah. He's my first cousin. Wow. Okay. So uh, knowing him basically and knowing his experience, you you kind of had a better idea of what you were getting into. But what was something that caught you off guard when you got to campus? <laughs> the my first surprise was uh, freshman orientation. So we had um, I think it was the first breakfast in Lobdell, 
and um, it was international. So here we were all to we were all meeting and greeting, and um, I encountered my first bagel and bit into it, expecting a donut. I did not. I was not yet introduced to a bagel, so that was my first surprise. <laughs> And then I think another I had the, another surprise was going into gosh if I can remember the name the big massive lecture hall I think in building two for calculus two because I had done A levels I didn't take calculus one I went straight to calculus two and going into the lecture hall with five hundred people and I was coming from the British school British system so I walk into the lecture hall and all of my fellow students many of them put their legs up crack open coke cans. And I was just in shock <laughs> at how casual people were. Right. I also went to a British school and, and things were definitely very different, much more uh, rule oriented. So uh, I, I guess both in the bagel experience and the, the lecture hall experience, there were quite a bit, uh, there was quite a bit of culture shock. But uh, based on what you were saying already, uh, you've been in basically several different cultures from the British school, living in Greece. Uh, your family is Palestinian, but originally was living in Lebanon. Uh, what can you tell me about the different cultures you've experienced and uh, the life you've lived? Yeah, and actually it continues because it, it's, well, war and circumstance uh, started all of this journey for the for our family, like many of your many of us within the MIT AAA, I'm sure. So Palestine to Lebanon, Lebanon civil war, fled to first Cyprus actually for a couple of months, which still holds a very special place in my heart, even though it was just two months of living there. And then Greece for 10 years. And Greece really has a special place in my heart, even though I haven't lived there since 86 and hardly visited since then because my parents um, ended up leaving Greece, moving to the UAE, and then ultimately to Canada. Wow, all over the map. <laughs> all over the map. So yeah, for me, it was just the beginning, and I have continued, actually. So I've been in the Netherlands, if, to move backwards, I've been in the Netherlands for the last three years, and prior to that, to the UAE, and Canada, and several states in the US. I've just been, yeah, I'm not, I'm, and I'm still not ready to, <laughs> to determine where where does the the suitcase land and does it get unpacked permanently or no definitely not actually so yeah i'm i think i'm one of two yeah two of us in the family from my cousins the two of us just seem to um keep moving around and it's 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 i i always forget sometimes in some places the initial the initial period of settling in which could be tough uh, just reorienting, leaving friends and starting afresh. But it's such a tremendous um, education experience. Now we also did it for our children so that they get the exposure of different cultures, not just vacations, but to actually live in different places. So I've definitely sought it out and I continue to seek it out. And I don't know where next will be, quite honestly. But hopefully it'll be a few. There's many, many places to discover yet. I have lots of questions about how that's impacted your life, but let's start with how it impacted your life at MIT. Uh, what was, was there anything strange about your experience to your classmates? Did you meet people who had similar experiences and how did it influence your time there? 
Yeah, yeah um, I started with that uh, the ori- fresh uh, freshman orientation, the international orientation, which really was very grounding. And these were my strongest friendships from the very beginning. So there was um, not just internationals, but it was a very strong part. And I think we, uh, I started off living in East Campus, and then uh, the last two years in uh, on Burton Five, I think. So Burton Five was quite international. And the suites that I lived in were very international. So I think we, we shared similar stories. Actually, here's a funny story. This was just after, I think, after we graduated or near graduation. Yeah, just right then. It was the Gulf War time. And it was myself, my roommate, Laura, and our friend Firas and his brother. So you've got a Lebanese. That was me. I was still just Lebanese at that time. Lebanese-American, Laura, and two Iraqis. Uh, and we were driving from Boston to Montreal to attend the jazz festival. And we get to the border and Laura only has her driver's license. Uh, you know, the, the, the three Middle Easterners were, but amazingly, they let us pass the border. But that was a point where um, you realize that all of these, where we come from and crossing borders and shared Shared histories and different circumstances are uh, they I, these friendships have have stayed for life for all these years. And you can go through life so differently, yet uh, uh, still reunite and reconnect uh, on your shared heritage and the, those wonderful experiences you had in college. Oh, absolutely! Reminis- reminiscing always too, as well. How has your time at MIT influenced uh, you know your life? post-grad, you know, and are there any memories in specific uh, about, you know, the classes, the structure, anything about that that really impacted the way you view the world? Hmm. Well, I went in not entirely sure whether it was going to be architecture or potentially biology with a route to genetics or medicine, because I, I loved biology um, going into university. So I, I still had the door open. But then I really just um, totally fell in love with the architecture program, the discipline, the thinking, the, the studio life. I mean, that's massive. And we were in building seven at the time. At the, Towards the end, the last year, we moved up to the museum building up Central Square. But initially, it was up on the fourth floor of, uh, of, the, of the dome, <laughs> of the lobby. And it was, it was just, it was intense. It was amazing. It was emotional. It was, you know, philosoph- philosophical, uh, creative. It just pushed all bounds. And I, I really uh, dove deep into it. And I just loved what the, what the exploration was all about. And, you know, MIT can be pretty intensive, so intense. And if it wasn't for my the love of what I was studying, I was really very uh, intrigued and passionate about the learning. It would have been a very tough ride, <laughs> you know. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, reflect on the academics of MIT being really tough and rigorous, and a lot of people find basically that your your social life, your friendships, uh, the different activities you can get into outside of classes are. A great way to balance that out. What were some of the things you uh, did on campus that helped you find that balance? Oh, goodness, very much so. Our eldest son now is missing the residential university experience. He's a first year student doing it out of his bedroom here at home, which I feel 
very sadly for him, but all of this, all of this COVID uh, graduating class, because that was such a remarkable, the residential dorm life was such a remarkable part of um, of my experience. Especially the first year. Yeah, and, and throughout, and throughout, because I lived on campus the whole four years, um, I think probably like most of us do as undergrads. But um, well, I got first, I, I the, the dorm that I got wasn't even one of the options on my list. <laughs> I think I wanted, what was the old women's dorm called? Not McGregor. McCormick. McCormick. Yeah, I knew it was a Mac. McCormick. Everybody wanted McCormick. I wanted McCormick. We even tried, to, oh, but we are a conservative background. Uh, but that didn't work. <laughs> so instead, they did put me quite senior house by East Campus, you know, the second <laughs> dorm. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, living with cockroaches and, and rats. But I think we all did. We all had the cockroaches and rats being next to the river. <laughs> well, you're, you're a couple of decades or three decades after me. I don't know how it was. Um, we still had that. Even oh, on okay, the seventh still, floor. Still <laughs> all right. But in fact, I ended up loving living there. And it, it's the, the long corridor, the endless corridor and dorms, uh, dorm rooms along the corridor. But that was such a, an amazing part of the whole experience from friendships and um the on who you do all-nighters with and who you go to the well actually it wasn't even computer lab yet it was the athena computer lab was just starting but i wasn't i wasn't course six so i didn't touch that but there was yeah it was just an amazing part of um of the whole experience my roommate laura was my best friend we even went to grad school together we we're roommates in grad school uh, at mcgill so it was huge it was my entire life in fact the first year i would say my universe was almost exclusively with Within campus with little bits of going out but limited and then next the second year would be more going to harvard square and maybe across the street and then the, the universe grew year by year but it was very much focused around dorm life studio life and campus life i definitely felt the same way i think it was the summer after my sophomore year that i i met these girls who were in boston just for the summer uh and really because they were there just for the summer they wanted to explore the whole city and maybe within a week they had seen more of the city than i had in two years <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it, it's hard to really escape the bubble uh in that uh while you're at mit because of just how much there's going on on campus and you know the excitement you have of just being around like-minded people who uh you know share your interests share uh, your even your ambitions and your hopes and your dreams. So, um, yeah, it, it was a great experience. No, absolutely, it was it was a, a crucial part of the experience. And as you said, there were so many incredible lectures on campus and activities. And I was on the east campus side of things, and most of a lot of my friends were on, and a lot of the dorms are on the west side of campus. And it's a big campus; it's a sizable campus. <laughs> there was a lot going on there, but thank. Also, then I started um, getting out more for the shows and the theater and the musicals. And we had the discount, the student discount. So I started taking advantage of that. Wang Hall. And yeah, amazing. So you eventually ended up uh, at McGill. Was that after a few years of working or, or did you um, go there immediately? No, I graduated and then this was a great reason. I've always graduated at recession times. Or <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it was uh, 1990, the whole, uh, it was big recession. So the whole construction industry was pretty much halted, which means that people weren't hiring architects. So 
and we had just immigrated to Canada. So I moved to Toronto initially and started looking for work. Everybody was, it was layoffs everywhere. So believe it or not, I started waitressing. Certainly my parents weren't too thrilled with that. <laughs> but I, and by the way, the money I made from waitressing was way more than the money I made from architecture <laughs> once I started wow. working in architecture. Uh, but I did... Yeah, and there then I, I did, opportunities. exactly, and then I did because I wasn't. I, I needed. I, I was, and I was doing some research for an architecture professor there at the University of Toronto, and just uh, connecting with people, offering volunteer services, and wanting to learn. So I needed. I wanted to be engaged in the profession. So it started that way, and I had a couple of consulting jobs and some some things like that. And then my parents had just moved to the UAE, and they said, "Well, you know, it's booming here." <laughs> so I ended up moving to Dubai for just under a year. Um, so this was coming into the second year post-graduation, I think. And uh, so, of course, you know, it's, it's never a, will you go to grad school? It's when will you go to grad school? <laughs> and so it was, um, do I go back to architecture? Or I wasn't even, not th- I wasn't thinking of, um, do I not go back to architecture? But I actually, back to that, here's a diversion, back to that trip that I mentioned when I went with my friends to Montreal, my friend Laura wanted to, she knew that she wanted to study medicine. So she went to check the McGill Medical School. And I thought, oh, let me go check the architecture school. So I did. And I, well, initially I got off on the wrong floor, <laughs> which was the urban planning floor. And that's how I ended up getting, talking to them and picking up an application to urban, for the urban planning program. So that was entirely accidental, actually. And then I did, and then I did speak to the architecture department as well. So when I was in Dubai, I uh, I applied to MIT, and that road down the street, the school down the road, <laughs> Harvard for architecture and McGill. And I did get into MIT for masters in, in architecture. Uh, did not get into Harvard, that school down the road. Uh, I did get a spot at McGill as well. And I thought that since we had just, I, I, I wanted to spend time in Canada, uh, being a new immigrant there. So that's how I, um, I decided to go for urban planning. And I was interested, you know, we were talking about how the, my university at MIT uh, grew year by year. So by the fourth year, our studio projects were more related, more, were on, at a bigger scale. So they were, we were engaged more in projects that had us going around the city and evaluating things and not just, you know, on the social side, not just on the physical side. So that's what also drew my interest in the larger context of, of development city and city development so it was interesting yeah I was intrigued in in finding out more about urban planning so I decided to go for it and that's how I ended up um, switching over into a career in urban planning. So uh, at MIT uh, your architecture classes were getting to an urban planning uh, perspective but did you ever take any of the course 11 or urban planning courses while you were still an undergrad I did I took a seminar I think the um, the, the six credit rather than 12 credit seminars if I remember correctly so I did and it was yeah that was that also ha- was an introduction for me on the, the discipline of, of city planning otherwise I was heavy on the design side of things and even in my urban planning program I wasn't it was more on the physical planning rather than the policy side which was what was I, what I was interested in as well. So moving on to your degree at McGill, what were some of the lessons that you know really stayed with you either in urban planning or you know living in Canada, uh, going to graduate school? And uh, did you uh, end up working in Canada after that? 
Yeah, uh, urban planning really opened the multidisciplinary um, components of developing, and which which were which I've always been interested in or became very interested in. Um, I mentioned not so much on the, I wasn't so much focused on the policy side, but it did open me up to the discipline of environmental planning, transportation planning. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was when I graduated from McGill, I moved to Toronto and uh, again, another recession, but this time I was, I knew what I was expecting. So immediately I started volunteering and I was, um, guest editor for a planning magazine there in Ontario for their 10th anniversary issue. So that was a great way for me to meet the, um, the prof- people in the profession and interview them and things like that and um, engaged with the professional community and landed a job sooner rather than later. And I was there for about probably a couple of years, a year or so. And then a friend of mine had um, moved to the U.S. in um, city of Minneapolis, actually. And I thought it would be very strong grounding to get city uh, municipal planning experience, just to be with on the public uh, in the public sector. And they had an urban design position, so uh, I ended up moving to Minneapolis. And then after that, and so and then it started Minneapolis, Chicago, DC. So back between the public sector and then back to the private sector. Um, on the consulting side and actually also did uh, the association i did i uh, was um with the american planning association as the their director of the american institute of certified planners so i got a taste of the association world for a few years so you had to move around quite a bit both in your childhood and in your career so um how did basically moving around when you were a child prepare you for this and is your field pretty conducive to moving around? Yeah, I think my the, probably the childhood uh, moving is what um, lit the flame and basically set <laughs> set it all. Like it has to be this way because then after that I started seeking new opportunities. You know, we, um, and life circumstances as well. Whether new opp- opportunities from husband or you know when he, we moved from. Uh, from she from Minneapolis to Chicago because he 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 got into Kellogg for his MBA so that was there but I stayed with the same company different city and then I was recruited to the American Planning Association so we moved to DC and then we actually we decided let's move we wanted to mark, make our permanent move back to Canada which lasted two years mind you but we moved to Canada so I told my employer the American Planning Association I'm leaving and they actually they didn't want me to leave so they said no let's you know, do it remotely so I've been doing um, remote work I started remote work early I was I think ahead of the curve or early an early adopter of remote work. So it was pretty easy when COVID hit for you to uh, just back into remote work. Actually, I've been doing remote work for the last five years since I started uh, Becky, my NGO. So that's the the next question I actually want to get into. Uh, you know, you have 20 plus years of experience uh, in urban planning and in a highly executive role. What was it like uh, transitioning basically to uh, the nonprofit world and and what does Veki mean to you and what does it provide? Um, Jack Veki is my child, <laughs> is is my, is my baby, and it's my first stint at entrepreneurship. Actually, um, I was 
I was soul searching. I was soul searching um, a little over five years ago, six years ago. Well, much. I'm always soul searching, but I was deeply soul searching at that time and feeling, you know, my career was was going very well and, you know, things were great. And I was, I loved, I mean, I loved urban planning. I love my profession and doing some really interesting projects in the UAE um, and in Saudi, just on, you know, some cutting edge stuff, uh, really uh, into it. But I also felt that I needed to, to do something Thing more personally directly impactful and in urban planning it's it's it is obviously impactful but there's a lot of it's long term and I just wanted I've, I've always done things on the humanitarian and on in philanthropy but it's like the after hours um whether it's helping out with charities or fundraising or you know li- little things it's um this is not all consuming it's it comes in the after hours of, of life. And so actually in this, um, in this exploration, a friend of mine told me about a program in Amsterdam called uh, Think Entrepreneurial Leadership. And I thought this sounds really interesting and it was really amazing. It really, uh, actually that's where Deki was born. It, uh, it was a very explorative, um, introspective kind of a program um, where uh, I really dug deep into things that are deep to my own personal narrative and history and things that I care about and in a way that probably I hadn't reflected upon earlier. So that's when I got the idea to start Becky, which is a social enterprise that brings, it's a nonprofit, but it brings, um, we it's a circular economy model of bringing donated laptops or ICT equipment, hardware. We get them from corporations and institutions that no longer need them. And we repurpose them with educational content and software for offline learning because of internet connectivity issues in Lebanon, which is mostly where we've been operating to date. And then we get them to organizations that work with children, um, refugee and vulnerable children who without our intervention, wouldn't have access to technology and ICT effectively. So I was, uh, so I got the idea. It was like, um, there were a few incidences that there were seeds that had been planted. And I, you know, upon reflection later on that I realized um, how this came about, but I hate waste of any kind. And, you know, how many devices do we have in our household and how, um, how this was at the peak of the Syrian refugee crisis when uh, you it was all all over the news the children missing out uh, people being displaced and um, just very heavy news to listen to uh, so I just needed to do something in in a positive space and and I got this idea so I pitched my kids school and say would you give me your laptops and then they said oh I just gave a whole bunch away but and the IT director said actually I love what you're doing can I join your team and I said wow. and I said yes please because I know what I want to do but I have no idea how to do it I did go to MIT <laughs> but I'm not a techie and the architecture program at MIT is really not a technical program so I don't know coding mm-hmm. and all of that stuff that I probably would be learning if I were to go now mind you um so <laughs> that's how that started and it's been an an incredible journey over the last five years and I've I've learned so much and it's been amazing because it's been it's actually the I'd say the first job first of all that I've had that's not a desk job so I've go to the fields a lot I go uh, which has been mostly Lebanon not so much in the last 10 months but um, prior to that just to see what, what's going on on the ground how to learn and to to react and to to respond to the situation and therefore at, um, tailor our solution to help what's needed on the ground or what's what's missing so how much of your uh, experience with Becky 
he has been inspired or impacted by your own history oh totally um very much so and it's i realize um it's it's been a very emotional emotive experience getting there and i mentioned the um, the, the think program that i that I went through and it was the the connection to the displacement of people today um really my connection or the knowing about my parents displacements my father has strong memories my mother doesn't so we've heard I've heard these stories but I was a child of I had just turned 8 when it was really quite heated in Lebanon when we were still living there and our house was bombed and it was just heavy, heavy fighting going on where we were. So it was a terrifying time and we fled and we were, we got out fairly early in the war, but it was still intensive and it's, you know, you, you brush it off and you go on with life, but then these, the experience that never really leaves you and you, pro, and um, so I think that was a huge part of it. And the realization that, you know, both my parents and us, um, my, myself and my parents, we, there was a displacement, but ultimately we were able to get on our feet and get on with life again and be able to get jobs and get education and contribute economically and and live comfortable middle middle class lifestyles and so we were fortunate and we had these the privilege we were able to get to that stage and it was the realization that it's it's a privilege you're it's a luck it's a draw of the luck where you where you fall yes of course it's hard work involved in all of these things but there's so much luck behind it and, and the whole injustice of the situation just made me realize that this, there is so much injustice here and this this equation has to be corrected somehow so i just felt a responsibility almost like an obligation i had to i i it, I have to do something about this because I, you know, we, we went through displacement, but we we had opportunities to come out of it. And if that's not the case with millions and millions of people. And when I started Deki five years ago, there were 65 million refugees. Five years later, we're at 80 million. So it's the, the numbers are increasing at a tremendous rate. And governments are supposed to step in, the international organizations are, step in, are supposed to step in, but there's so many gaps. And I see a huge role. And I've seen this has been um, a remarkable, heart-opening exposure for me is to meet just incredible people on the ground in Lebanon who are ordinary people who have um, stepped in, stepped up and are making a serious ripple, like making a huge difference in this small bubbles that ripple from the ground up. So I, I very much believe in that. That's incredible. The the way that you embody that resilience that to not only reflect and and have that part of your life be you know a part of your identity but to actually channel it toward improving the lives of others who may be in similar situations and who don't have the opportunities that you were lucky to have so it's it's great to see you know MIT students putting their skills you know maybe not the ones that they they learned uh, in the classroom, but the ones you learn and with your friends and the different connections you make and the, the lessons you learn over your career to really improve the lives of people who, who really can't stand to benefit a lot from this work. And your work has actually been recognized recently um, by MIT Solve, which is, you know, kind of that uh, competition form of bodying that sense of putting our efforts, our, our thought process into practice to solve some of the world's greatest issues. 
So can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Solve MIT experience? Yes, this is very fresh news, actually. It only happened last week. So I'm thrilled. It's it's uh, quite the honor and very thrilled to be part, to be a solver now, part of the MIT Solve community. And we, it's, we are a tech-based solution and we're, as in we're bringing technology and we've created our own user interface. And it's very much of a collaborative effort because we have many partnerships on, on all aspects. So I'm glad that was recognized as, as a part of an innovation rather than we haven't created a new app or something like that necessarily. But there's innovation in a different sense and on the social innovation side of things as well. So really looking forward to this, um, the next nine months. It's a nine month, it's like an accelerator as well. So it's, there is some prize money, but it's the, the, the power of the network and to be part of them. It, it, it will reconnect me in a, in a strong way in a, uh, with the MIT community and more of the, in the professional sense because I've been connected actually I stayed connected with the MIT community since pretty much since graduation because I, I was an EC educational counselor from early on and I still am and um, then I was on MIT the local chapter boards in many of the cities that I've lived in and in the last nine years on the Arab Alumni Association board but I think this will be a reconnection on the academic rigor side and the, the opportunities that MIT itself has to offer as well as it's, it's the remarkable network that's part of so I'm I'm really um, hoping to take to maximize this opportunity, and I feel very privileged to have to be able to to be part of this group. So very thrilled about that. That's excellent. And based on the kind of support that you're getting, where where do you see Zeki going into the future? Yeah, I I, sur- I really hope it will. Um, this will be um, part one of the opportunities to to help us grow and propel. And it's not it's not just a question of scale, but it's a question of depth for me and to to make a real deep impact we've been operating in Lebanon and we would like to I'm, I'm not I think I really would like to keep our focus on the Middle East and heaven knows there's enough um, there's a lot of need there and I think probably I will not stray away from the the purpose of serving vulnerable communities I, I I think that's going to be core to what I stick with um, but you know you never know but this is this is really of, of great importance to me and so I, I would like us to be um, serving other places in the Middle East we very much are operating under a circular economy model of leveraging assets no longer needed by their original users whether that's hardware um, and even asset uh, content that's created by uh, content experts that's shared with us because of our uh, our mission for example you know we've got um, National Geographic and Oxford University Press and Hidrak and so many other great um, educational content providers that they've given us their content we put them on the laptop so these are made available to, to the students and their teachers by the way it's not just the children who are getting the digital literacy skills and digital content it's their teachers who by and large in many cases this is their first interaction with with digital that's not a telephone and we, we have been focusing on laptops and I um there isn't. I don't believe there's one solution that uh, to address to solve any of these problems, but numerous solutions. I mean, um, mobile phones definitely have their role in education. So do tablets. But I think laptops with the full functionality of a keyboard with the, the high um, hard drive capacity. I mean, our image is now 100. We're at 100 gigs and growing. So wow. and the full what you can do with full keyboarding, whether it's spreadsheeting, coding, presentation skills, graphic skills, it opens up that world. 
So it's really, uh, it positions children and those utilizing these tools to be able to get to the start line for for future employment and having these employability skills. So I, I see us as deepening our presence definitely in Lebanon, which um, hit upon hit upon hit with Lebanon with the last not uh, being the latest tragedy, uh, but also hopefully getting to Jordan and to Palestine, hopefully into Syria, Greece with the refugees there. So the region, the whole region uh, is what what we're aiming for. And we're, uh, we're on a bilingual platform at this point. Everything's in Arabic and English. So that's the current focus. At least I see that as being the focus for the next five years. And then beyond that, we'll see. That's way too far away. This actually brings me back to one of the classes I, I took at MIT with the, the D-Lab. So D stands for development, design, anything you want it to, basically. But it really was... Uh, embodying this whole uh, idea of community capacity building. It's not just giving them the tools, uh, giving the computers to the students. It's actually teaching them how to use it, teaching the teachers how to teach them how to use it. Uh, so I'm glad that there are opportunities like that uh, outside of school to be able to give back and that uh, organizations like Zeki exist and can really make an impact. Yeah, it's amazing that you were involved in that. I had, we'll, we can talk about that offline. <laughs> we should. <laughs> Absolutely. To close off right now, what's one thing you miss about MIT? The people and the atmosphere and the um, the crazy all-nighters that we would do together. Just that adrenaline, the exhaustion, the jubilation, the tears. It, yeah, I, I, nothing compares to that. <laughs> nothing has compared to that since then. So thank you so much, uh, Rosaina, for joining us today. And uh, it was great to really delve back into... Uh, the different experiences you've had too. So thank you so much for sharing your story and hopefully it inspires some people to go after all the things that they are interested in. Thank you so much, Dana. It really has been, it's been amazing walking, just hitting the nostalgia and walking down memory lane. So I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear right now. So thank you so much. That was Rudaina Abdo, our special advisor to the board and the founder of Veki. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. And as always, if you have any feedback, please reach out to us on our social media, subscribe to our channels, uh, and share it with your friends. Shout out to our scripting team, Arin Bahur and Omar Obeya, as well as our editor, Ma'moon Tukan. And we'll see you next week on Tuesdays.